It's a privilege. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm going to get to preach this last sermon of 2023. Is it too early to say Happy New Year? Do you wait till Happy New Year anyway? Um, let me pray, and we'll get into that passage. Heavenly Father, now as we approach your word, we come so needy of grace upon grace upon grace. You've given us the grace of your word. Now give us the grace to hear your word. The grace that this, this word would change us, shape us, that we would know more of what it means to commune with our God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, within my own time in pastoral ministry, um, there are different kinds of situations that can arise um, in a church, in, a, in, in someone in the church's life. Some of them are very unique things. They're one-offs. It's a coming together of, of, of a unique circumstances. And, and, and as, as a pastor, as pastors, you, you pray, you seek wisdom, you seek godly wisdom from others, and you just you, you pray that you would, you would respond rightly, like in a godly way. There are other situations that happen and come up in people's lives, and they're just actually not that unique. They come up kind of regularly. And one of them is this, and, and when I say this, this is not to shame anyone who's had this um, conversation with either me or, or a pastor or, or just with one another. Um, it's, more to, it's more an encouragement. You're not alone. And, and the conversation or the question comes along the lines of this, what does it mean to walk with God? What, what does it actually mean to have communion with God? What does the Christian life look like? So I get how you become a Christian. I get that the gospel saves me. But what does the Christian life look like? Like for after that, what does it mean and what does it look like to grow in knowledge of God? Not just in my mind so I can learn more theology, like that, that as, as excellent and essential as that is, but actually in my heart to grow in my experience daily of God. And that can come from um, different places where you ask that question. Like one place it could be is, like, am I missing out on something? You know, because sometimes I can look around and I can think, it seems like some people have something I don't have. Like when it comes to the Christian life, they seem to have a communion with God. They seem to hear from God. They seem to be very passionate, enthusiastic about the things of God. And I'm just not sure that's like where kind of me or, or me all the time. Or, or, and so it could come from the place of actually just saying, I would like more. I would like more of God. I don't want to kind of, kind of drift into a kind of spiritual malaise, a kind of sameness to my, my walk with God. Actually, I would like to know more. I would like deeper fellowship with the triune God. And what might that look like? Well, we are in week one of a four-week series. And the four-week series is going to be called Walking with God. Um, I shared this story at a prayer gathering uh, but so forgive, uh, last year, so forgive me for repeating it, but it kind of gets to the heart of what, what my hopes are for this, for this series. And it was in my early 20s, I was given the, the published journal of Jim Elliott. 
And Jim Elliot was one of five young men who were martyred as they were seeking to reach unreached people in Ecuador and they were speared to death. He was one of five of those guys in the 1950s. Anyway, he had a journal and it got published and I was reading through his journal in my early 20s and I was struck by one short, just like little entries each day and he's kind of just speaking about his life with the Lord and the different things happening in his life. Anyway, one of the entries went along the lines of this. Today, he says... I felt distant from the Holy Spirit. He just said it. Didn't make a big deal about it, but just said it. But it really struck me. I was like, I actually don't know what you're talking about. Like, I was like, what? I don't really have a category for what you're saying. Like, so you experience one day kind of different to the other day as far as your communion with God. And at the time, I was very busy doing a lot of things for the Lord, I think. Um, I had a full-time job, but on top of that, I was, you know, I went to church in the morning and I went to the evening service, you know, that's a lot. I went to, I went to all the kinds of things. I was leading a youth midweek Bible study on Wednesdays. I was leading the youth group, the fortnightly youth group on Friday nights at the church. Uh, I went on short-term mission trips every single year around New Year's, around this time, now. And yet I, I found myself thinking, I'm doing lots, but I don't know what he's talking about. I'm doing lots for the Lord, but perhaps having little communion with the Lord. And even today, if I'm honest, I find it easier, and I may be the same, it's easier to do things for the Lord than have deep communion, friendship, walking with God. J.I. Packer wrote this about modern Christianity. J.I. Packer said this, When Christians meet, they talk to each other about their Christian work and their Christian interests, their Christian acquaintances, the state of the churches, and the problems of theology, but rarely of their daily experience of God. Modern Christians, books, Sorry, modern Christian books and magazines contain much about Christian doctrine, Christian standards, problems of Christian conduct, techniques of Christian service, but little about the inner realities of fellowship with God. Our sermons contain much sound doctrine, but little relating to the converse between the soul and the Saviour. We do not spend much time alone or together in dwelling on the wonder of the fact that God and sinners have communion at all. No, we just take that for granted and give our minds to other matters. He closes off with these words. He says, thus we make it plain that communion with God is a small thing to us. Is that, I wonder if that's true for you. Have we? Have we fallen into a kind of Christian life where communion with God, walking with God, fellowship with God is a small thing to us? <clears throat> I was thinking about this, like if you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, and well, maybe just a little bit after that, and you, got, you had a chance to speak to Adam and Eve, and they'd, they'd been removed from the Garden of Eden, and you, you asked Adam and Eve, what was, the, like, what was the best thing about the Garden? You know, like, what was the highest privilege that you experienced of being in that garden, that kind of garden temple? What, what, what would you say? And then, like, uh, you know, like, like, there's different answers. Obviously, being in that paradise place must have been amazing. You know, man, it was just beautiful. Like, you don't even understand how 
stunningly beautiful that place was. And the, the food, I mean, the, the, the fr- it was just unbelievable. Like verses like Genesis 2, 9 come to mind. It says, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. God just made <laughs> trees that go, this will be great to look at. And this will be great for eating. And it was just like an unbelievable place. But of course, they wouldn't say that, would they? Because of course, the, the fundamental and most high privilege of the garden was fellowship with God, communion with God. That's the fundamental first and foremost thing that got lost when sin came, when, when they sinned. So that God came into the, in the cool of the day and their response wasn't, yes, communion, sweet fellowship with God. No, it was, let's hide in our shame. We have broken covenant with God. And then you get, I think, so that's how it begins. Then you go to the very end of the Bible. Well, what is, you know, because one day, by God's grace, we will find ourselves in the new heavens and the new earth. What will, you, what will be the highest privilege of that? What will be the best thing? You could go, okay, it's, it's going to be beautiful. Of course, it's going to be beautiful. Like, the, it's going to be glorious to, to, to see. It'll be amazing to live in a place, in, a, in the new heavens and new earth, like the, where there's no sin, no suffering, no sorrow, no, none of the brokenness and all of that. Like, that will be great. But what actually is the highest privilege of heaven forever and all eternity? Jesus tells us in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What is heaven? Like the highest gift, the highest privilege of heaven? It's knowing God. Revelation 21 verse 3 says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That is the greatest and highest privilege of heaven for all eternity. So as it was in the beginning, so it will be forever. So what about now? Well, the Christian is invited to share deeply, though imperfectly, in this highest privilege of walking with God. Is it a small thing to us to have communion and fellowship and walk with God? So, over the next, well, it's going to be a four-week series, but in, uh, be, between now and Darren's preaching next week, and then we're going to have three weeks, which continue the series, okay? This week, hoping to lay foundations for what we'll look at in the following three weeks. So this is kind of the foundation sermon. What actually kind of gives us and grants us the, pro- the privilege of walking with God and fuels that walk with God. And then after that, we'll take in turn our fellowship, which each of the persons of the Trinity, we, the, the one after, so the one after this one, which is in Fortnite, we'll look at the love of the Father. Then we'll look at the grace of the Son, and then we'll look at the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So, this week, foundations. Let's lay foundations for that kind of thing where we come into communion and fellowship with God. And for that foundation, we have a story, and it is a great, amazing story. It's from Luke chapter 7. The story, as all stories have, they have main characters. Three main characters in this story. We have a Pharisee named Simon. 
We have a prostitute, a notorious sinner in the town, and we have the Lord Jesus. Let's get into it. So verse 36 sets the stage. It says this. One of the Pharisees asked him, that is Jesus, to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. So this Pharisee invites Jesus over. It doesn't explicitly say what his intentions are, why he's invited Jesus over. But I think we can, we can gain from the story that he's actually curious about Jesus, that he's wondering about this Jesus. And he's kind of, because you see throughout the story, he's kind of weighing Jesus up. He's deciding, what am I going to do with Jesus? So just try to picture the setting of this meal because it will help. It'll, it helps with kind of feeling the story. So in, the, in that time for a meal like this, you would have kind of a, a long kind of low table, low down table in the middle of the room. And all the invited guests would kind of gather around. There'd be kind of cushions all around it. And the invited guests would, would kind of come up to the table. They'd lean on their left arm and eat with their right hand. And they'd be laying down and their feet would kind of get tucked, down, tucked around the back. Okay, so that's what the invited guests would do. But meals like this weren't just private affairs. They were, they were actually open to others, uninvited people, to come and stand around, around in the room and, and kind of like they, they would stay quiet. They're not part of the conversation, but they could listen in and, and listen in and understand and, and kind of t- take part in that way. So they could come and go as they please, but they were uninvited and they could just gather around. No one expected, though, this uninvited guest to turn up. Verse 37, it says, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Luke says, behold. Like the word means, whoa, look. You do not expect her to be here. You know, like worlds are colliding which don't normally collide ever. Right, the Pharisees don't hang with these kinds of people. Pharisees showed their moral superiority in the world by not, by not acquainting themselves with people like this. But neither do people like that really want to be around the Pharisees. Who, who needs that kind of judgment? Who needs that kind of condemnation? She's described, it says, as a woman of the city. Now, it's not like a cool urban thing. Oh, she's from the city. Okay, cool. She's probably a vegan. She probably like, loves coffee and, and things like that. That's not the idea. Most commentators agree that she's likely a prostitute. She is a known and notorious sinner. And without saying a single word in this entire story, she does not speak. But man, she preaches a sermon of sorts. She turns this whole meal upside down. It says this, When she learned that he, Jesus, was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house. Let's stop there. So clearly she knows something about Jesus that would make her want to go to this Pharisee's house, right? So she, she's not coming in just to meet Jesus. She's coming in because she knows things about Jesus. Probably she, he, she has heard his preaching. And she has heard him say things like, that, that have just blown her mind. She, had, she did not have a category for it. That she heard things like, Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Like, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Like, that I have come to seek and to save the lost. Actually, I have, it's not the healthy that need the doctor, but the sick. And, and she has been listening to this and thinking, I'm poor. I mourn. I'm sick. Is the kingdom of heaven for people like me? What? I thought I was, I thought I had no chance of that. 
I can know God. I can be included in his kingdom with my past. So she hears Jesus is at a Pharisee's house. She doesn't want to be near the Pharisee. But Jesus is there. And so it says she brought, it says, an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. So she comes prepared. She brings her alabaster flask of perfume. That's a, a, a very expensive possession, probably the most expensive thing that she would have owned. And I think that that was probably her plan. She just knew of Jesus and she knew and, and she believed his preaching. And she just thought, I'm going to bring my best thing. I'm going to take it and I've just got to thank him. I just have to thank him. And she probably walked there thinking, and I'm not going to cry, and I'm not going to cry, and I'm not going to cry. But she gets there, and she makes her way through the uninvited guests, having to ignore the, the stares and the mutterings. What is she doing here in this place? Doesn't she know? She makes her way through it all, comes to Jesus' feet, and just can't help it, and just starts weeping like heaving. And we know it's a lot of tears because it's enough to wash his feet. And one thing leads to another, she needs a towel. She's wet his feet so much that she could clean them. She needs a towel. She's not going to ask for a towel. A sinful woman in this religious, hypocritical man's world. And so what does she do? She takes out her hair and she begins to wipe his feet with her hair and kiss them and anoint them with perfume. This is scandalous stuff. The Talmud, the Jewish kind of commentary, said that, said that if, if a man could divorce his wife for taking out her hair in public, that was like a shameful thing to do. That's just for the husband. That's just for the bedroom. But Jesus is not scandalized by her at all. He doesn't retreat from her. He is so kind. He's everything you might expect but just can't believe. He's gentle. He treats her beautifully. We know he does because the Pharisee criticizes him for it. Do you see verse 39? Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So you can see he's, he's weighing Jesus up, isn't he? He's deciding, what do I do with Jesus? Oh, okay, I'm seeing now. He is not a true prophet. Do you know what syllogisms are? You know syllogisms? They're kind of like three lines of logic. You make a statement and then you can deduct different things from that. So the famous one is, um, all men are mortal. Plato is a man. Therefore, Plato is mortal. It kind of helps you see like a worldview. Um, I was thinking of like an AFL example. I don't know if this lands uh, as, as good, but if you know AFL. So if you met like a, uh, a football fan without teeth, 
okay? Now, it would work like this. Everyone from Victoria understands where I'm going with this. <laughs> so you meant that, and so it would work like this. The syllogism would be, all football fans without teeth go for Collingwood, okay? This football fan has no teeth, therefore this football fan is a Collingwood supporter, okay? Any Collingwood supporters? Okay, so, <laughs> okay. so stick with me. So here's the worldview of the Pharisee. Prophets, true prophets, prophets know who sinners are and they do not let them touch them. Jesus just let this woman touch him. Therefore, Jesus doesn't know she's a sinner. He is not a true prophet. But what if he's wrong? What if Jesus knows exactly everything about her? He knows all of her past, every one of her sins, and he is inviting her near. Verse 40 says, Jesus, and Jesus answered, answering, said to him. I love that because why is that strange? He only said things to himself. And Jesus is answering him. Is Jesus a true prophet? He knows exactly what this guy was just thinking and begins to have a conversation with what was going on inside his mind. Yes, Jesus is a true prophet. And he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. <laughs> say good. And he answered, say it, teacher. And Jesus tells a simple parable. It says this, A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he cancelled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? That's pretty easy, isn't it? That is not a complicated story. I've asked the kids this one previously, and they, they, they knew it when they were very, very young. Like, this is not a difficult question to answer. You've got two people. They have a lot in common. Like, they, they have a lot in common, don't they? Both in debt. Both can't pay their debt. Both end up forgiven of that debt. What's the difference? There's only one difference between them. The amount of the debt. 50 denarii versus 500 denarii. Both forgiven. Now, who loves the moneylender more? Well, Simon's kind of trapped, isn't he? There's no way of like not answering this question. It's so obvious. But for him to answer it will, be, will mean to put judgment, speak judgment on himself, right? So verse 43 says, Simon answered, the one, I suppose, he doesn't really want to say it, does he? The one, I suppose, for whom he cancelled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Yes, you're right. The one who has forgiven more loves the one who forgave more. Verse 44. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon. You see that? I love that too. He turns to her, but he's talking to him. He looks at her. And you imagine the eyes, I just, to be in the, in the story and to see the, the, the eyes of Jesus, the compassionate, kindest oceans of comfort to this woman, this sinner. And Jesus says to Simon while looking at her, do you see this woman? Looking at her, do you see this woman? That's not a question about his eyesight, you know, like someone's in the way. No, of course he's seen her. He's already made judgments on her. He sees her. Jesus says, do you see this woman? Jesus says, in a sense, Simon, look again. Take off your self-righteous, like, hypocritical glasses 
and have another look and see if you might not see what I see. Do you see this woman? Jesus is asking us now, I think, including us, let's see this woman. And Jesus describes what he sees in three contrasts between Simon and the woman. First contrast, Jesus says, I entered your house. It was your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You see, he says, Simon, you didn't even get water to wash my feet. You didn't give me a towel, but what you didn't do, she did with her tears and with her hair. Do you see the difference, Simon? Do you see the contrast? Contrast number two, you gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. So kissing was just a normal part of greeting in that day. And Jesus is saying, Simon, you didn't even greet me. You didn't give me one single, like what you didn't do one time to greet me, she has not stopped doing since she arrived. And not my cheek in greeting me, but my feet out of awe and honor and reverence and respect and worship. Do you see the difference, Simon? Third contrast, verse 46. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. So scholars will say that that's not something that a host had to do, but it's something they could do, anoint the head with oil. And the point is, you didn't. You could have, but you didn't, Simon. But look at her. She has anointed me. She's not just my, my head, but my feet. She came prepared to do it. She brought oil so she could do it. So you think, man, that's all true. There's been a massive difference in their responses to Jesus. But Jesus, what's your point? What is the point of those contrasts? Well, Jesus says, verse 47, Therefore I tell you. So on account of this, on account of the, the vast chasm of differences between the way you have related to Jesus, how you have responded to me, Jesus says, I can tell you what happened. And what Jesus explains works. That is, it, it has explanatory power for why they are so different in their response to Jesus. In fact, it has explanatory power for why even today, people even in here will have different responses to Jesus. It, it has explanatory power for why some people want actually no walk with God, no communion with God, no fellowship with God. It has explanatory power for why some just feel very cold towards the Lord. Maybe you, you are saved, but your attitude towards Jesus is kind of pretty minimal. It's, it's actually, if you were honest, more Simon-like right now than the woman, perhaps. What is it? You see, God offers us fellowship with him through various means. Um... He offers us his word. He offers us prayer, fasting, the Lord's Supper, obedience to him. This church gathering is an offer of his grace to have fellowship with God. And he's offering himself to us week in, week out. And how do we respond? So you can even, um, I just want to run through this, and, and you can just even kind of check your heart. Like, yeah, what, how have you, even just this morning, this is the most recent thing we've been in, we're all here together. How are we responding to the, the offer of fellowship with the Lord Jesus that's been here this morning? So we had a call to worship. And for some of us, the call to worship might have been kind of like the woman. It's like, oh yes, here we are. Once a week, I'm with my church family 
I'm gonna, I get to worship God corporately, hear from Him. God is calling me out of the world into this holy moment. Praise God. But for some of us, it might have been like, oh yeah, my thoughts kind of wander as we kind of have that moment of silence. And it's just kind of very casual. It's like, you know. And if we're honest, it's like, it's, it's a bit more Simon-like in response. And then we sang. And for some, of some, it's like, oh my goodness, we're going to sing. And, you know, like I get this opportunity to put um, like song to the things that are in my heart, my love for the Lord, praise God. And, and, and these words are just rich and, and wonderful. But for some of us, if we're honest, they're more words than heart. It's a bit more Simon-like. Well, then you come to the corporate prayer and some... Some of us are praying, kind of just marvel at the holy, like glorious moment of that. We are speaking to God. We are being led in talking to God. Amazing. Bringing requests to Him corporately. But for some of us, it's like, if I'm going to be honest, it's a bit of a low point in the service. And if we could kind of move past this talking to God part to the, maybe the more entertaining parts, that might be good. But then we come to the reading and the preaching of God's Word. And for some of us, it's like, oh man, I need this. I hear words all week long from, other, from the world as preaching at me. Oh, how I need the Word of God in my life. Yes, Lord, prepare my heart to receive your Word. For some of us, it might just be pretty nonchalant and kind of casual and ordinary and routine. Well, that's just this morning. But just am I just asking in general, are we, if we're honest with ourselves, more Simon-like or more this woman-like? What marks our life of communion with God? Are we welcoming Him like this woman? So what accounts? There's the differences. What accounts? There's the contrast. What accounts? She did all of this. Simon, you did nothing. Why? Jesus explains, verse 47, her sins, which are many. So Jesus, like, what follows is not any kind of minimization of her sins. I just even wonder at this moment, like what she would have thought, oh no. When he says her sins, which are many, and she'd be like, oh man, please tell me the kingdom of God is still open to me. You know, her sins, which are many. I'm not making, God never makes light of our sin. He never minimizes how bad sin is. But he says this, her sins which are many are what? Forgiven. For, I mean, as in, this is why she has loved much. But he who has forgiven little loves little. You see, Simon, she has treated me this way, washing, kissing, anointing, seeking fellowship with Jesus. Because her sins, her many sins, are totally forgiven. That's why she loves much. But Simon treats Jesus so differently. There's no washing, no kissing, no anointing, no fellowship. And that wasn't just like a slip of the mind. Oh man, I just totally forgot about the foot washing and the, and the ointment and the, you know, like I'm just not gifted in hospitality, you know. That's not what was happening, was it? What was happening was spiritual. No, that was just fruit of something else that's going on inside your heart. You don't think you need forgiveness. That, therefore, you don't think you need me, a saviour. Therefore, you have no need for fellowship with me. But Jesus says, look at her. Look at this woman. 
I see, Jesus says, extravagant love in response to the extravagant grace of God in her life. I think it's an amazing story. Isn't it an amazing story? Um, you know, Jesus in a room with the religious kind of elite, you know, you can imagine like today, like Jesus in a room with a bunch of pastors. But here's, in comes a woman of the night. And the moral of the story is, she's closer to God than all of you. It's just... Verse 48, And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. So she's there. She must look at him with her own watery eyes. And Jesus just confirms to her, Yes, everything you had hoped, everything that you thought could possibly be true, it's actually true. Your sins are forgiven. Psalm 1 verse 18, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Her sins are many. Jesus knows all of them. She is fully known. But her sins are forgiven. She is fully loved and accepted. Verse 49 says, Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? That's kind of where the story leaves it, doesn't it? It's like, well, you have to make a decision about Jesus then. If this is all true, what are you going to do with Jesus? It doesn't leave you in kind of like, eh, I don't know, well, no big deal. The Pharisee invites him over to forgive, figure out who he is, and he comes to the conclusion, not a prophet. The woman came uninvited because she actually knew who he was, her only hope of forgiveness. So here comes the true syllogism of the story only God can forgive sins. Jesus forgives her sins. Therefore, Jesus is God. Is that who Jesus is to you this morning? Is he the one who has forgiven all of your sins? Verse 50 says, And, and he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And I think that peace has like the two senses that you might think of go in peace. Like she now has peace with God. She has been reconciled to God. There is no enmity between her and God. That He has no condemnation for her, no wrath towards her. She is at peace with God. And now she can go on to live in peace. That is the peace that transcends understanding. Like, like of course, her life is not going to be always peaceful. No, the Bible never promises that, that you'll always have a peaceful life. But she can know peace because she has peace with God. That's the passage. Gives us a powerful picture, I think, and the, of the kind of like the, the basis, the foundation, the fuel of walking with God, our own fellowship with God. John Owen put it like this, that our communion with God flows from our union with God. Does that make sense? We have union with Him, and out of that flows communion with Him. The woman does not do all of this with all of her perfume and all of this so that she could have union with him. No, she has been forgiven. Like that would turn the whole story upside down. She's doing all of that, hoping that, that this will earn forgiveness. That turns, her not, that turns her from a worshiper into a beggar. Please forgive me. Please, if I do all of this, will you, will you love me? No, she has been forgiven. Therefore, that is why she loves much. Union with God and communion with God. Actually, important to see the distinction. Union with God, we are passive. We are receivers of grace. 
We have no part to play. We bring our sin. That's about it. And what we get is grace. We are not saved by works. We are saved apart from works, and it's all of grace. We receive the wonderful news of the gospel. However, communion, that does involve us. We have entered into a real, live relationship with the God of the universe. There are literally things that you can do to hinder your communion with God. There are things that you can do to develop and to sustain and to enrich your fellowship with God, your walk with God. So union with God is a pathway into communion with God. It's a means to that wonderful end. Sinclair Ferguson writes this. He says, The forgiveness of sins we enjoy, that this woman enjoyed, the peace with God we receive, indeed our justification and reconciliation are in one sense means to this great end that we might know him. Paul can describe salvation in Galatians 4 verse 9 like this. But now that you have come to know God, that's what happened. So let me land these kind of foundations with just a few questions in our conclusion. Four quick questions from the text. First, do you know that your sins are many? And, And for some, you might respond to that and say, I know they're many. I'm sure that they are too many. You have no idea the sin I bring into this room today. Be encouraged. This woman had many sins too. And she knew the forgiveness of God. But another response to that question might be, I don't have that many sins. you like, your sins are many? Not that many. Okay, let's do a little bit of math, okay? I'm not great at math, but my dad did this once and it struck me, and so just run with it for a second. And maybe I've done this before, but I don't think I have. So anyway, it doesn't matter. A bit of math. Okay, let's just say you do three sins a day. Three sins a day, okay? So let's just say like you did something you shouldn't have done, you failed to do something you should have done, and you thought something bad, okay? Just three things. That's just generous. Some of you are like, please, done it this morning, in the car on the way here. Well, that's a strange brag, but anyway. You, three things. Three things a day. Okay. Let's times it by seven, we'll get a week. Okay? That's 21. Let's round it down because I'm trying to be generous, but that makes the math easier too. So it's 20. Okay, we've got 20 a week. 52 weeks in a year. Let's just round that down to 50. Again, it's more about the math, but it, I'm being, trying to be kind as well. Okay, so 20 times 50 is 1,000. Thank you. Just, <laughs> that's true. It's a thousand. Okay, average lifespan in Australia presently is about 82. Okay, let's round that down to 80. I'm not trying to shorten your life. I'm just trying to make the math easier. Okay, so 80 years at a thousand. That's 80,000. Okay, 80,000. So you, I mean, just imagine you stand before a judge and this is your argument. Hey, I've only done 80,000 things wrong. No, friends. Our sins are many, and I've tried to make them as little as possible. (laughs) Our sins are many. Second, do you believe that Jesus is the only one who can cancel your debt of sin? Because for any debt to be forgiven, payment is required. Someone must pay. Either it will be you who owe the debt, 
or it would be someone in your place. In fact, the money lender himself can absorb the debt. But someone's got to pay. Someone has to pay. And this story in Luke chapter 7 is part of an, a bigger story that Luke is telling where Jesus is actually on his way to the cross where he will pay for every one of this woman's sins. That's why he can say your sins are forgiven. Because I'm going to pay for all of those things when he goes to the cross, having lived a perfect life. Then he can be the perfect sacrifice. And he can take on all of her sins and then impute to her all of his righteousness. So she is washed clean of every one of her sins. And that's the exact same offer on for us this morning. Do you know that Jesus is the one and only one who can cancel your debt of sin? Third question, have you put your faith in Jesus? Because it's one thing if you agree with everything I've just said, so you're like, yep, my sins are many, and Jesus is the only way. Guess what? The devil believes that. He knows that. What he has not done is the next thing and put his faith and his trust and his reliance on the Lord Jesus. Have you done that? Have you, have you poured out, just thrown yourself on the mercy of God, much the same as this wonderful woman does in this story? She could not save herself, but she trusted in Jesus and she gets everything. Entry into everything. Communion, fellowship, with God. So lastly, question, last question. Will you seek to love God then? If that is all true for you, will you seek to love him in proportion to the grace he has given you? See, Simon's received no grace, therefore he has no desires for the Lord Jesus, no communion, no walk, no fellowship. This woman and us can see our sin, see our Savior, have our faith in him and, and, and just kind of bubbling up inside us is all kinds of desires to know him, worship him, to give him all of our lives. And it's the logic of all, I think, all the best songs. You know, we've sung it this morning, right? How great thou art. You remember the logic? And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. What's the next line? What's the next word? Then. So I've considered the cross. I've considered my burden. I've seen his, uh, the glory of it. Then, after that, sings my soul. My Savior unto thee, how great thou art. How great thou art. The song we're going to sing just next, similar logic. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. And it close, and, and, and this, is, this is an illustration. I couldn't help but use it, and, but we, we use it in church life. If you've done church life, then you know it. But I'm just going to repeat it because it, it lands the plane, I think. And it's the story of if you, say so someone goes away on holidays um, and someone comes and house sits the house for them. Do you remember this story? And someone house sits the house for them and then the person comes back from holidays uh, to be greeted by the person who was house sitting and the person who was house sitting says, hey, uh, by the way, I paid one of your bills for you. And, 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 and you don't really know how to respond until they tell you 
what's the bill? And so if they say, oh, you know, like you went over the Gateway Bridge on, on your way to the holiday and you didn't pay that bill, and I saw that $10 bill and I paid that for you, and so don't worry about it. And, and what's your response? Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate that. You didn't have to do that. Oh, thanks. Appreciate it. But then you rewind, and if they come back and, and say that this, this person who went on holidays actually still has about $600,000 left to pay on their home loan, and the person says, I paid one of your bills for you. And you go, oh, which bill? Oh, I saw you still had some, like, 600000 on you. I paid it for you. If your response is, oh, thanks, man. Appreciate it. Didn't have to do that. Hmm. You'd be like, you don't understand the debt. You don't get it. And so Jesus comes to us this morning and says, hey, I paid, I paid one of your bills for you. You're like, oh, which bill? I paid for all of your sins. I took them, I took them on the cross. I'm offering you eternal life. Not just a debt cleared, my righteousness on top. Will you take it? Why wouldn't you take it? Brothers and sisters, we have been invited into fellowship with the God of the universe and deep communion with him is not a fantasy. It's not, it's not reserved for some elite Christians, pastors, or it is the birthright of every Christian and it's on offer for every single Christian. He has saved you for it so that you would know him and be known by him. Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Don't you long for that? David Clarkson, theologian, writes, He that has communion with God is in heaven while he is on earth. That, this is the gate of paradise and puts us into the suburbs of heaven. Oh, that we would not think about communion with God ever again as a small thing. Let me pray. Father,